out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. As you know, we love a special guest. We do. Now, this week it's going to be the turn of the bassist Martin Brett, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Now, one-time member of The Voice of the Beehive and he's actually still a member of the band who occasionally reform for live dates when they can get it together, which is occasional, but not this year, obviously. But he's now a member of I Ludicrous as well and appeared on their last two studio albums. Yes, they are still going and we loved them then, we love them now. But this is the interview and after several minutes of casual chat, we were talking about random moments and random meetings and this is where he explained, I'm building this up obviously, um, Andy Ross who was uh, managing Food Records with David Bath. Food Records... Um, Yes, signed Blur basically and became part of that whole Britpop world. And this is how he became a member of the Voice of the Beehive. I know that's a rather sort of wordy introduction, but it does make sense because I'm going to cut straight into his response to that. And this is going to be it. Martin, take it away. Which is exactly how I joined Voice of the Beehive in the first place because I was. Um, walking through Soho one day and Andy Ross said, do you want to come for a beer? And I said, yeah, okay. And, uh, and we met in a glass house in, in Brewer Street and, and and we had a pint and he looked really miserable. And I said, well, what's the matter? And, and he said, because um, uh, initially they had um, Woody and Bedders in as a, a rhythm section for Voice of the Beehive. And Bedders was... Uh, leaving and um he said i can't find a bass player anywhere and there i was sitting there in front of him there you go that was a bit like lemmy joining uh hawkwind i think the, the bass player wasn't there but he left the bass and he said well you know, dave brock said do you, do, do you want are you able to use it and he was like oh, i better give it a go please thank you this is a exactly. good gig so he took it and went off and did hawkwind for a few years. yeah so what but was your if you hadn't been there, it would have never happened. No, I had. If I hadn't walked down the street of Soho and met Andy for a pint, I, the rest is history, you know. And but you don't get that now. Slight, it's a sliding doors. God, it's such a it's a it's a film, isn't it? Really, mm. quite literally. Mm. So, look, what was your formative years then of kind of growing up? When when did you when did music... I grew up with the Damned in Croydon. Did you? Uh, yeah, yeah. We um, it was. There, I, I lived in Croydon, and there was a big punk scene in Croydon when it all first started. Um, I lived in a little uh, village south of Croydon called Wallingham. Joe Strummer lived there actually, um, but um, yeah, there's some photographs of his house in, in his book. But um, there was a hell of a lot of uh, a punk scenario going on in that area. Um, and it, it, it was very weird because um, we all played together just before punk, you know, um, and everybody had long hair and everybody was like slightly hippie, you know. And, but I was I was very young then; I was only sixteen. But um, the, we, we we used to hang out with the Damned and. Uh, Rats gave his uh, Ray. I mean, there's a whole Croydon scene of punk that, that goes back for, for years. And when you can have the Bromley scene as well with, with yeah. Susan Matches, which isn't far away. Um, so um, in those early days, um, I was so young, but I. Uh, I, you know, I got up to the Roxy Club in in Common Garden. In those days, the Roxy Club was derelict. I mean, I mean the, the whole area was derelict, Common Garden, because it had just been uh, shut down um, for to be re rejuvenated. And um, in '76, around that time, '75, '76, the Roxy in Neil Street was literally, I mean, if you 
if you went down there, there was no lighting. You can you had to find it by crawling along the walls almost, you know. <laughs> um, and it was a horrible little basement, and but it's where really punk started. Uh, a guy called Andy Sikowski, um started up with with, with his girlfriend or wife. Um, but was, was, it, was that the was that the equivalent of kind of Max's Kansas City and CBGBs? Would you yeah, say? yeah, I, absolutely, one hundred percent. I would say that was the CBGBs of uh, uh, London at the time. Because interesting, CBGBs was in sort of the Bowery, Bowery which kind of mm. everyone said was a horrendously kind of unpleasant area but um very cheap so there you go but it was in those days i mean the lower east side um the bowery and and all 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 that i mean new york in those days was i I don't know if if you ever experienced it but it was (laughs) it was really scary yes because i remember there was you know i I didn't experience it firsthand but i did have watched documentaries where it was kind of it was almost like just redundant and people had just left it and said, Let, let's just forget that exists and we'll move somewhere else. And so, yeah, and in yeah. a simplistic way, it was like birth of punk-ish disco and rap music. And it was a bit like, well, okay, it attracted a lot of drug dealers and criminals, yeah. but it also attracted a lot of young artists as well. And obviously punk and Andy Warhol and all that gang were sort of there doing their thing, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it helped. But um, yes, interesting times. So did you feel, because although you were incredibly young, 16, had you started playing bass by then? Yes, I was the, I had a band at school and there were a couple of other guys that played guitar. I wanted to play guitar, but I was the worst guitarist. So they, they said, Martin, you're playing bass. Um, so I went, all right. And, um, <laughs> Actually, it was the best move I ever made. <laughs> because if I'd carried on guitar, I probably wouldn't not get anywhere. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the the famous the rhythm section. So had that at that point, had you started to? I mean, as you probably can gather, you know, I was in. I'm in my mid fifties, so I sort of. It was that whole early year of glam that came on top of the pops in like 1972, 73 that I was. Seeing, you know, Sweet and Gary Glitter, obviously, and obviously Alice Cooper with Spills Out. But luckily, yeah, it was David yeah. Bowie was my first love with Space Oddity. Of course. Of so, course. what what were your what was your kind of moment where you started feeling very excited about the charts? Um, well, I could be completely ridiculous and go back to my earliest memories of looking at album covers of the Beatles on my parents' floor, you know, um, crawling around in as a five-year-old and seeing, you know, because in those days, the Beatles was, it's almost diffi- difficult to, to, to say how influential they were on culture. They were part of the culture. You know, and so I look at the the album cover of I can't remember the, this but one of the early ones where there's the four of them on the front, and I go George, uh, Ringo, you know John Paul, George Ringo John Paul. That would be what I'd be doing as you know cr- crawling around. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, that it was that massive, and then you go to the supermarket with your mother, and there'd be free Beatles cards on a on a on a packet of Daz, you know. Yes, absolutely. Well, I I can't quite remember that, and to be honest, my parents yeah, were a bit was... more kind of into the world that was country and western, which was a bit tragic, really. But my brother yeah. was older than me, and he got a copy of he bought Sergeant Pepper kind of in the mm. early 70s and I and at that stage it was kind of weird looking back because actually the Beatles had only just finished but when you're 10 no I was probably I was born in 1964 so I wasn't that old but seeing this kind of album and looking at it and feeling realizing now the Beatles had only just broken up a few years before but things had already shifted mm. already hadn't they you know to a, well they had and, and you know one of the things that I just find extraordinary is that the period between the mid fifties to the mid seventies, the output of incredible creativity 
was just unbelievable. I mean, bands in those days did albums, sort of several albums a year, you know. Yes, uh, well, I, well, I suppose it, good. yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of like, um, it was quite unbelievable. I mean, I know it doesn't quite go with your time zone, but I remember having, you know, that obsession with David Bowie, thinking, God, he did an album a year in the 70s, relocated, did several big tours, produced other people's, mm -hmm. took lots of drugs, had lots of sex. I don't know how he managed to get time, you know. I mean, we got very sort of excited in a slightly bored way with the Stone Roses bringing an album out, which was like, guys, you know, you missed your like zeitgeist. Yeah, you, you missed your zeitgeist there. You know, you all, we all have a... No. <laughs> but no, Bowie I mean, I, like, you know, I, 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 it's, it's a horrible thing to say, but uh, I mean, I've got two grown-up uh, sons who are both in the music industry, and they slightly envy me having been a young person in that time. Yes, um, it does. I mean, it's, it, is a bit, it does look quite good. So what happened then when you, in the kind of the, so you do, you were there right in the punk world, that mm -hmm. sort of, what was, what was your sort of indie world of the 80s then, that post-punk and that next period? Because, because um, I mean, to be honest, I put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which are the years of the Smiths? Because there was a little bit of that kind of, oh, we're not sure. And then suddenly the Smiths came, it's like, okay, the parties really started. And then they broke yeah. up. And then things changed a bit more. So what was that kind of period like for you? Because, well, because Thatcher got in 79, there was yeah. all the, you know, there was the Falklands, mm -hmm. there was the Miners Strike, there was Red Wedge, there was a lot of kind of unemployment, but there was a lot of good music. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and a lot of bands that I've interviewed, you know, were on Job Seekers Alliance and Enterprise Alliance games and doing mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So what was your kind of early 80s like? Okay, so, um, well, I, I suppose I've got to be frank, and I will be frank because I don't really care anymore. Um, I... Uh, I would say by the very early 80s, I was living in Brixton. Um, uh, I was playing in sort of bands that weren't that significant. And there was a huge drug thing going on there. Um, because out, out of punk, you know, you know, a lot of people got, got involved with heroin. Um, and, um, you know, I, it, was, it was creeping, it, creeping into my soul and uh, because it was there all the time and, and living in that area at that time that's what it was I mean I used to live in a, a horrible hard to let uh, uh, apartment uh, where they delivered heroin through the, the letterbox every morning. I mean, you know, I mean, it was almost like, you know, there was a postman. <laughs> 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 and um, I began to realise then that all I'd worked for over the last 12 years or whatever to try and get something, it wasn't going to happen. So I moved to Manchester. I got away from it. Um, right, because it's interesting because I've done a lot of interviews with these American bands around that time and, and heroin was just, it just wiped out most people and a lot of them are all dead now, aren't they? Because obviously they yes. just get out of it. But yeah. it was, I didn't realise there was such a parallel with, with London and New York. Cause oh, well, the, 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 punk, the punk thing, it all started with amphetamine sulfate. Um, that was the big drug. And then, of course, you know, people... The Heartbreakers came over. Um, yeah, and I mean, we—I knew Waterloo and and those guys, and I, I was a baby, you know. Yes, I know. I mean, Johnny Thunders and and Nolan must have looked like well, they, they, they were old. They were old men, and and I kind of I loved their music, but you also kind of love what they're about, so you. you you're, you're, it's not a great influence. No, so, but Uncle so, Lemmy was always very anti-heroin, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yeah, um, he was very like. Um, 
Uh, no, I can, I, I, well, I can totally understand that, but, you know, he's slightly hypocritical <laughs> Daniels and, and bloody amphetamines, I mean, uh, um, and cigarettes, you know, so, but anyway, just cut, kind of, you know, I, I thought, well, hang on a minute, I'm not getting anywhere in London if I'm going to be like this, so I went up to Manchester and I had a band, a band there briefly that was slightly neuromantic, um, um, not my favourite uh, kind of music, but I yeah. was a bit desperate to, to do something away from it. And it, up north, it was quite big at the time. And I think we had a top 40 hit with that one band. Um, um, I guess that lasted about a year and a half. And then I, I came back to London and my wife and I bought a flat in Wimbledon. Wow. Um, um, well, no, actually, no, we didn't. I was living with in my grandmother's house. Um, she died brief. I was living there briefly, um, and then Shelley and I, when I got into Voice the Beehive, we 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 managed to buy a put a deposit down for a flat um, in in Wimbledon, and. Um, that was all through that meeting with Andy Ross. Yes, Andy Ross has helped you on the line. Yeah. But what was, so, so obviously, because I mean, it's kind of a, you know, 1% of the people, musicians kind of, kind of make it, so to speak. So, so, so during that time, because, the, the, you know, like I mentioned about, the, you know, that indie scene, because you had, this is kind of simplistic, you had the mainstream charts with, you know, the, mm -hmm. the Trevor Horn production and you had Span and around around and then the mm -hmm. cool jazz sound of Working Week and Sade and Face and all that kind of blitz mm -hmm. kids. And then you've got all these kind of indie, indie bands <clears> on <throat> John Peel like Stump and Big Flame and Bog Shed and, mm -hmm. you know, June Brides and the go-between. So where was your yeah. heart and passion musically during that period then? Well, my heart and passion was always with like Iggy and the Stooges. I mean, you know, I, and Mark Bolan, and you know, it was something that came from my past, and and a past that wasn't that long ago, in technical terms, years wise. You know, I mean, I used to carry around a pop, uh, an album cover of Raw Power. You know, when I was sixteen, and other guys that I was at school with were carrying around Genesis albums. You know, I mean, that was that was the, the difference. So I hadn't changed later on at all. I still had that, um, that whole thing about being in a band that was, I did love melodies and, and that was the Beatles thing, I think, as well. It, 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 I remember when Oasis first came along, I thought, oh my God, They've cracked it. They've got the punk and the Beatles thing perfectly, you know? Yeah, I, I just thought to myself, they, they found a formula that isn't, that people couldn't find. And I love Oasis for that. Uh, obviously, you know, things change as they go along. But, I mean, <laughs> you know, their first album, um, I just thought, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, um, and I, I remember telling people, I, I, found, I found this band, I found this band that have punk and the Beatles combined. You know, that, that, that's what it was for me, you know? Yes, absolutely. That was quite, yes, that's quite, that's quite a moment. I mean, were you, I mean, just going back before that, I mean, had you sort of got into the sort of the indie, you know, zeitgeist and all those kind of little clubs that were happening, like the, the, the I said, the, the room, the living room and the, and the room at the top of the stairs and all those kind of indie gigs that, you know, we see pictures and posters of now, were, were they kind of on your radar at all? Um, not, it's difficult to, to say, to, to answer. I was going out to see gigs. I mean, I saw people like, you know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers playing their first gig at Dingwalls. I was there and there was like 20 people. Um, I was out and about. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, I was aware of indie music because 
um, of all the punk, uh, the, the way that we put out singles for punk and, and stuff like that. So I was very, um, you know, uh, uh, I, I love what they were doing, you know. Um, and, and I mean, I probably wouldn't have joined Voice of Beehive if I, if I, I wasn't aware of, um, because of that stage, the Voice of Beehive were an indie band. Yeah. I mean, um, without 100% indie, you know. Yeah. So tell us about the, the just how that happened then, your moment, your sliding doors moment. But um, So were you in a band at that moment when you were in the pub? No. Um, I think at that time I was sort of, well, as I said, I think earlier I was getting a little bit worried about, you know, why, why <laughs> I've been trying to do this, you know, because originally, okay, I'm sorry to backtrack, I hope this isn't boring. No, no, it's fine. But when I was 13 years old, um, my father said to me, what do you want for your 13th birthday? And I said, I'd like to go and see T-Rex at Wembley. And he said, okay. So my father sorted it out and bless his heart, he must have hated it. We went to Wembley, 1972, I think it was. It was the biggest thing in the planet at the time. Yes. Um, and there's footage of that, that that gig, which I sometimes look at and think I was there. Um, and I watched this gig, and on the way home in the car afterwards, I said to my dad, no, I remember thinking while I was watching it, that's what I want to do. That looks like a good job. <laughs> 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 and on the way home, I said to my dad, um, I'd like to have a guitar, please. I'd like to learn the guitar. And he said, yeah, okay. Um, 13 years later, he was watching me at Wembley. Wow, that's amazing. It's not a bad story, is it? That's a classic. I mean, you can't, I've never heard that one before. You know, it's, it's no. you know, the dream. That is the dream. I know. It, 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 and so going back to where you're saying what happened before Voice of Beehive, I was in a very low place because nothing was happening, you know. Um, but all that was going to happen ahead of me. I didn't know it at the time. So how do you, I mean, as a bass player, had you sort of thought, look, I'm a good play bass player, but things haven't lined up? I mean, you know, how were you keeping your enthusiasm? Because obviously... Um, obviously writing, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, I was doing a lot, um, but obviously, you know, so as you know, people now, they do a lot and it doesn't go anywhere. Um, um, but I was very fortunate about knowing Andy and... Um, that, that 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 meeting in the pub was 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 literally a a returning point for me. Well, absolutely. And did you um had you heard the heard of the band before then? I I'd, I'd been to see them um, a few weeks before um, in the George Roby in North London when Bedders and and Woody were were playing with them. And I went and met Dave Balfour and Andy Ross up there to watch, to see them, because they, I think they told me, come and come and see this band, because they're really great, you know. And uh, at the time, you know, I, I, I you know, there's, I, 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 it's funny, isn't it? That if you, before you've joined a band, you go and see them and you, you think, oh yeah, they're all right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, I think I was probably more at the bar with Dave and Andy and, and, uh, and you know, but literally did I know that a month later I would be in that band. Yes, and what was it like kind of going to the first rehearsal and, and sort of meeting me for the first time? Um, well, I had to audition. Um, and uh, I, 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 can't, I can't remember how many people were there, but um, it was in 333 Studios in Caledonian Rose. I don't know how I remember that. And um, I walked in 
and um, Mike was in there. He was the guitar player. Uh, he was quite laid back. And, and it, it's that horrible moment, isn't it, when you, you go in and you know they've, they've probably rehearsed God knows how many people all day and you're one of the last, you know. Yes. <laughs> and uh, we walked in. But I had done my, I had done my homework. I'd really worked hard on the songs that were going to be uh, Andy and Ross told me what we, I had to play. Uh, I really worked hard on it, and um, Woody was the one that decided that I should be in it because he said I was the best out of the lot. There you go. The rhythm section is is born actually. Mm. So then, I mean, then what happens next is quite. I suppose it felt, must have felt like a complete trip. Oh, well, it went very quickly, um, really, really quickly. Um, I went from nothing to, I think my first gig was Croydon Greyhound. That was when, um, well, the indie single came out after that and went straight to number one in the indie charts, just a sissy. And so, of course, that attracted all the big uh, record companies. So I think my first gig was at uh, Fulham Greyhound. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was quite a scary thing, you know, because it's packed out with A&R men already, <laughs> you know. I mean, um, and then we did a very, very, a few, a few short dates. Um, and then he went. He went to the first major, well, not major, but you know, reasonably big tour of Britain, and the Proclaimers were supporting us. Wow! <laughs> yeah, yes. on, on that very first tour, that was that was quite odd because I mean, obviously we didn't know how they were going to go on to what they went on to, but there was just the two of them. That was that was the beginning. I, I mean, I'm, uh, you know. For the next ten years, we we were on the road and just round the world. You know, um, we sold a lot of lot of records. Yes, and you obviously, you know, you hit you hit gold at the first kind of attempt with the first album. You know, and you worked yeah. and you were working with the famous Hugh Johns as well, weren't you, the producer? Um, Hugh, yeah, Hugh worked on the first album. Um, but he didn't work on all of the tracks. The the guy that um, worked on the hits. It was a guy called Pete Collins, and uh, oh god, I just I'm starting to remember things that I haven't even thought about tonight. Um, so we we recorded the first album, Let It Be, in Puck Studios in Northern Denmark. Okay, and we turned up at the um, airport. Um, and George Michael turned up as well. And he was coming with us to record Faith, his first solo album in, in the same, well, not the same studio, but the same complex. Yeah. So um, we got on the plane. Um, I, I happened to... <laughs> quite inebriated because I'm thinking well I'm not doing anything tonight you know I'll drink a few whiskeys and God knows what and then we get to this uh, um, uh, airport called Aarhus in northern Denmark and it's middle of nowhere and we turn out and there's there's only one car and um, somebody says well has anybody got a driving license and I said, well, I'm the only, you know, I have, but, you know, they said, well, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to drive this car. <laughs> so I shoved George Michael in the back, you know, I was really pissed. And um, <laughs> we had to, I had to drive on the wrong side of the road in the, in the dark, all through these country lanes to this fucking pig farm which was where the studio was and um i mean i mean to this day i don't know how i did manage to do that anyway we got there and um 
<laughs> it was so funny because we walked in. There's us and George Michael. And George says, you know, is, is there any marijuana? And um, the guy, the guy who owned the studio sort of picked up this big bag of, of marijuana, like huge. He said, yeah, Depeche Mode left this behind last week. You can have this. <laughs> That <laughs> was like okay, yeah, fine, um, and and then we had, uh, I mean, we had we had our own houses in this complex, one each. It was, it was just incredible. I mean, um, I, I mean, this was the eighties where where record companies were spending stupid money, and this was cheaper than than the recording in Britain. That's why we were out there. Right, because it sounds like that one in, in uh, is it Rockwell in, in Wales, that kind of, that farm? Oh, Rockfield, oh, yeah, we, we did some of the album there, yeah, yeah, we did. That's sort of the, the bizarre farm that people went to, in the bizarre yeah. farm. So, well, but you in Denmark was instead, and was it, it wasn't in wintertime, was it, surely? Uh, yeah, what, must have been. <laughs> I can't remember. It was late. It was sort of late '87, or um, I don't know. I don't know. But um, anyway, we had a month there, and George was doing Faith, and we were having breakfast together and dinner together, and um, he left. Oh yeah, he left, and uh, Mike, moved, our guitar player, moved into uh, his apartment, his house, for some reason. I don't know why, and. Um, Sitting on the uh, the table was in pencil all the lyrics to Face, uh, the song. He just left it behind. So Mike's still got that. Oh my God. I was going to, I thought, oh, don't tell me he's written the fire, but he's kept it. No, he's got it. He's got it, man. I still say to him, you still got those lyrics to Face. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God, that's a fantastic story, actually. That is a good one. The post <laughs> drugs, and the, uh, and the mix of faith. I mean, did you, I mean, on a slightly curious, were you listening to each other's work at all, or all sort of talking about how the sessions were going during the day? Uh, with George? Yeah, or well, yeah, just kind of yeah, going well, on. Well, no, I mean, I'm actually, it's a funny, it's a funny story, and, and I actually, I picked that on it, but I, I don't think it's necessarily true, but, we have a song on that first album called Trust Me. And it it has the junk, 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 And it just seemed like a bit of a coincidence that Faith went junk, 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 junk. I'm not saying that he heard it and got influenced by it, because it's a very much a a Bo Diddley kind of riff, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but it was a coincidence we had two songs like that and we were next door to each other. <laughs> That's amazing though, that one, that sort of that period that, you know, had two such massive selling records at the same, you know, being produced at the same time or made at the same time, really. So that must be... Well, and when, and when, you were, when you were putting it together, did it have that vibe that, you know, things were pretty special? Um... We knew the songs were good. Um, you can never quite believe it at the time because it's your first proper album. Um, was there, a, was there I, a sense of timing? Because a lot of people talk about timing, you know, because some people have been a bit unlucky and other people went, Jesus, we were lucky. Um, because, you know, we, like I mentioned, that indie world and then that gets a bit bored. Then we had the ecstasy, and we had the dance scene, and then there was grunge appearing on the sort of horizon with everyone kind of getting to know. Well, we miss all that. Yeah, and you come along in a way that's like, where does that kind of fit with any? We, kind of we, we missed that whole period because we were away on, on, on tour for a few years. So yeah. we were going around the world while the whole acid house thing happened. We, we, we just completely passed us a, a by because we were working so hard. Um, and you know we weren't that kind of band anyway, but um, it, you know it, it, we were lost on that. And we were away. And how were you coping emotionally, well, emotionally and physically, dealing with being on the road and just kind of having that kind of sudden 
Jesus, the thing that I wish for has happened, and I'm, you know. No, I mean, I'm, it was the hardest, most grueling work I've ever done in my life, and I, I think we were all pretty lucky not to come out of it absolutely mentally damaged i i mean as a lot of us were I, we became alcoholics and god knows what i, I you know I, our first tour of america we did 66 days in 90 66 states in around 90 days yeah. and we did 10,000 miles in a in a bus and i'm telling you you got to do radio interviews. You got to do TV as well. Um, we were on our knees, absolutely on our knees, and we're very young. We were reasonably young. Reasonably young. Yeah. Um, I remember starting in New York, and three months later coming back to play the final date in the in the um, at New York for the last day of the tour. And I was downstairs. I was talking to this bloke in the toilet. And I was saying, oh, man, I'm just really fucked. And, uh, you know, I haven't slept, you know, four hours a night for three months. And then I realised it was me. I was looking in the mirror. Oh, oh God. That's terrible. I know. <laughs> that was how bad it was. Well, that was a bit of a problem. That was like taxi driver, but on a bad dream. Well, I know, but I thought this bloke was, you know, this nice bloke in the toilet, you know. My God, they, that's um, that's because a lot of bands that I've interviewed, they they you know they have you know the sort of famous five year narrative, but mostly they break up after they've done some American dates because they just think actually mm -hmm. that just finished us off, you know. Mm -hmm. So you 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 really had you know you weren't just touring Britain and then a bit of Europe. You went. Big, you know, stateside, didn't we? Well, yeah, we I, um, we did two, uh, two or three proper matrices, but you see, they don't do that anymore. They don't do that. They don't put bands through that. <laughs> you know, where you have to start working at grassroots level in America. I mean, we went from being very successful in Britain and playing to the, you know, what I don't know, um, town and country club or, or two, two, two or three thousand a night. Um, and then we end up going back to America. We were playing 300 uh, a night and, and having to travel, you know, 10,000 miles. <laughs> and, uh, I, um, you know, it was insane. I mean, if you've ever been on a tour bus for three months with the same people and you're, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, I don't think this that happens anymore. No, probably doesn't for various reasons. But yes, you did it. But then when you come home and you know you look at the record sales and everyone thinks you you've been having the best time ever and you you're a bit, you know, a bit strange. How do you then sort of pick yourself up to sort of keep the band kind of like as a functioning unit to then think about the second album? Well, we had a very a big problem with the second album. Um we did a lot of demos. Um the record company didn't like them. Um, and in fact, they were amazing songs because we've, we've, we've got an album, you know, a B-side album that we did ourselves. Um, we had a very, very uh, scary time uh, between the first two albums where they were, they were thinking about dropping us. And um, we came up, uh, Tracy, our, our main songwriter, came up with, uh, a song called Monsters and Angels, and that literally just changed things. They thought, yeah, this 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 could be a hit. Um, and then we did a um, a series of very small dates in the Marquee with, with, uh, in London, which was um, uh, a move from Wardour Street to Charing Cross Road, I think, in those days. And we did three nights there, and the music press just went absolutely wild about it. And the, and they were like, "Oh my God, this this band have come back and they're brilliant and gone as well." And that had literally changed the record company's uh, opinion of us for doing the second album. And that's how the second album went in into production. Yes, that's that's um, yeah, and did you and did you sort of keep was that, was Andy 
Ross, was he the manager, by the way? Uh, Andy and Dave were the management. Yes. Both. Yeah. Both. And we did they? Both, and did they? Both, and were they supporting you in a in a a good way? Well, they were trying to. Obviously, obviously, I forgot to tell you. But I mean, we'd signed to London Records by then. Uh, I mean, obviously, before the first album, we signed to a major. So, um, yes, they were trying desperately to keep it going. Yeah. Yes, but then when well, the it took, took off again with the second album, and it so it, is, it went silver, didn't it? It went silver. Uh, I, I think it went gold in the end. Um, I mean, we had uh, num number two hit in Australia, places like that, you know, with the second album, uh, uh, Monsters and Angels was in the top 40 in America. You know, um, the thing about Voice of the Beehive was that the, the, we're actually a, a multinational band. We weren't just big here. No, I know. There's, there's not many bands who do the Australian thing. No, you forget about it, you know, that you're doing things in the other, the rest of the world having people sort of pushing you around. And how was the band sort of coping with that kind of the famous second album kind of cliche? You know, were, were you still sort of, did you still feel like a good unit or was it starting to get quite hard going? Mm. We were only too pleased for it to happen again, knowing that the songs, we, we, we obviously we loved the songs and um, it was, I mean, I, you know, in between those two albums, I actually was almost going to leave because I, um, my um, one of my best mates was uh, Michael Dempsey, who was the original bass player of The Cure. And um, uh, Lowell had left The Cure. He was forming a band. So I, I went down and I was doing some bass work with Michael and, and Lowell because I knew The Cure when I was, a, you know, so when I grew up. And... Um, I was on the verge, you know, of thinking, well, you know, which way do I go here, you know? <laughs> um, but when when we got the go-ahead for the album with Voice of the Arv, I thought, well, no, there's, there's no contest. Um, you know, this, this is what we should do. Yeah. Uh, and then we, we got three, three hits out of that album. Um, one was a cover, which is I think I love you from, which is the old. Um, I mean, I I never liked it, but um, it 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 was a huge hit around the world. Um, the cover of the Partridge Family. <laughs> <laughs> Dear old David Cassidy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and then you you sort of because because that's when after that album is that when sort of various members started to sort of feel like it was time to leave the party. Yes. Um, after the album, the girls, they went back to America. They recorded an album with just the two of them under the name of Voices Beehive. And, and well, you know, I wrote some stuff on it. Mike wrote some stuff on it. Um, but it bombed. It, it didn't go anywhere. Um, and that was the end of it um really um and then i went back to michael dempsey from the cure the bass player and we set up our own music production company and we started doing music for films and adverts and stuff like that which took me through the next sort of 10 15 years um so that was my next step Yes, this is the, the the Brett Dempsey Music Productions. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Did you did yeah. you sort of get your sort of life back a bit more into a normal a normal mode? Well, to, to a certain extent, but you know, you've got to work hard to get out there. It wasn't any different to you know the contacts. You know, the internet was only just starting. Um, so you're still going to have to go up there to Soho and meet all these. Uh, Horrible people in the advertising. <laughs> I, I, sorry, I, I don't mean that, but it's, yes. um, um, you're you're slightly demeaning yourself in your creativity, but it's a way of making a living, and um, you know there was a lot of money in it at the time. Yeah. Did you feel though when you started seeing the Britpop kind of period on top of the pops with Sleeper and Echo Betty and mm. and 
glow and oasis did you sort of feel like oh actually we we could we should be there as well we are contenders. no i i didn't compare ourselves to that um era i um i i, I we were we were a complete i, I thought we were a, a, a different band compared with uh, any scene, I think Voice the Beehive, which is Voice the Beehive, we we weren't really part of the scene. I mean, if if if, if I could have compared us to anything, I would have compared us to Fleetwood Mac, you know, or something like that, um, uh, with an edge, you know. Um, the fact that there were two girls and three British guys was was quite unusual. Yes, it was actually. It was and um... the two girls being sisters as well, you know. I think the closest was there a band called the Heartthrobs who had two sisters. They were yeah. an indie band. And um, I think Pete DeFritis, is it Pete DeFritis from the Echo and the Bunny Moon? I think that was. Oh, yeah. That was his, 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 um, was it his sisters who were in that band? Uh, the Heartthrobs. Maybe, maybe. David, but, can I stop you for one second? Yes. I just need to go, uh, just nip out for like a minute. Yeah, sure. Okay. Hi, don't worry about that. Yeah, no, God, that's okay. Look, my dog, so, my dog, my dog was going crazy. Oh yes, these, these things do happen. But so one of the bands that I didn't mention earlier, but that, that was sort of there on the very John Peel show, was um, not the Pooh Sticks or uh, yeah, Bogshed or Stump or Big Flame. It was I Ludicrous. And then, so how did you suddenly become a member of that famous band? Well. Um, I started in 87, which was pretty much the same time as Voice of the Beehive. Um, Will Hung, the, the singer, um, is, is my best mate, basically. Um, and obviously I didn't see him for a long time because the Beehive was around the world doing stuff. He was busy with John, the two of them, becoming this sort of cult indie, um, <laughs> very amusing band. And um, um, I played on a couple of early stuff of theirs. You know, I just went down and did it as a favour and, and, and whatever. But um, and I got them on supporting Voice the Beehive on a couple of gigs, I think. But um, when Voice of the Beehive ended, and then when my advertising career ended, um, Will and John hadn't spoken to each other for a long, long time. And I just said, I was in the pub with Will, and I said, you know what, this is too good. What you've done in the past is just too good to uh, ignore. I, what if I come on board? And we we start recording again and, and, and do it in a slightly different way, you know. Um, and of course, both of them said, well, I wasn't sure, but, uh, you know, we, we had a few rehearsals and, and, and what have you. And, and so I joined the band and that was like 10 years ago, I think now. You know, I'm the new boy, I'm the Ronnie Wood of I Ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it helps when you're in a band with people who, who are mates and you look at the world in a different way. You don't take yourself too seriously. You write about the, the mundane 
observation of the mundane is, I think, a very amusing area. Yes. Um, well, I suppose uh, half man, half biscuit, are they? Well, know, yeah, of course, of course, of course. Um, so, um, well, we've only done two out al two albums in the last ten years, but both of them I'm very proud of. Um, and then, of course, we got picked up by the Fat White family. Who, um, you know, we got you know, as old people, they're they're wonderful, the Fat White family, because um, they don't care about age. You know, I mean, this just doesn't come into it. It's all about you know. Um, product or, or attitude or whatever you're uh, involved with and um i was a fan of the fat white I, I discovered the fat white family i kept saying to john and, and, and will you know this is called the fat white family and, and, and i've been so demoralized by modern music you know for years a few years and they came along and i was just like totally rejuvenated again by by their the whole persona and attitude and the way and then helpfully you know they're not that far down the road in Brixton you know that's where they they come from and um and out of the blue Leas the singer he's he, he said he heard some of that stuff and he, he said I want to come down and see you you know and I think we played at Dingwalls or not Dingwalls, um, Dublin Castle. Right. Yeah, tiny little gig. I mean, obviously, I ludicrous only play small gigs like that. And um, he came down to see us, and then he got us to support them on their their tour. And uh, we had a fantastic time. And, uh, you know, there's a sort of mutual kind of love affair going on there now. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we've discovered these this whole brilliant musical scene in South London that I, you know, I'm, I'm amazed by, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm 61 years old now and I was, I love, love these guys, you know, that are doing all this. Um, it's, it's really, really in interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And did you say you also work in the, the film industry on theatres only as well, television? Yeah, doing uh, doing beers and, and massages. So how did, I mean, that's... Um, oh, that's something I, I, I was doing, uh, you know, here, I'm sitting here now in my uh, office, shed office, that's that's where I did all that, yeah, yeah. I mean, I did, I did Martin Scorsese's Hugo, um, I did Ben King's beard for that. I mean, I, you know, I've done a lot. How did yeah. you um, just just get some? Never come across this. How did how did that happen? Um, my sister had the company. She started, um, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago. She went to the London School of Fashion, and and then she worked, uh, um, you know, uh, backstage at um, Les Miserables and stuff like that, and doing the uh, beers. And then what you do is you basically have to weave real hair. In, into uh, it's very complicated um, but anyway she she taught me it took me kind of three four months to learn I wasn't going to do it but I thought hang on a minute I, you know this might be interesting and it was very well paid as well and um, so um, yeah weaving away in my shed making beards and moustaches right it's, it's um it's a great world when you just think oh my god I just I've never, never come across this, so it's um, no. I mean, I get, far more, I get far more like people go. So what do you what what do you what do you do? And if I say I'm a musician, they go, oh yeah. I go, I make beers and massages. They go, really? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And with the, I mean, because the band, you know, the voice of the Beehive. A bit like a lot of bands, they keep coming back. Do you are you part of that kind of nostalgic? nostalgic you yeah, know, like, yeah. No, we. Re, I mean, reformed. Uh, when did we do reform last year? Uh, was it last year or the year before? Yeah, we did. Um, we did two nights at the the forum, sold out, three thousand a night. 
Um, we still, I mean, you know, bands don't break up anymore. I've noticed that. When I was a kid, bands broke up, didn't they? Yes. Um, now, you, you're a brand. We still sell T-shirts. We still, tell, you know, um, luckily we have, because of the internet, you know, people are still interested this is why i mean i wouldn't be having this conversation with you if it wasn't for that you know no i mean it is kind of i mean i know that the, the dreaded world of streaming but it has it has meant that people keep discovering these bands you know and, and the 80s bands i think anybody who's curious with music will just because you get the obvious stuff and then you start picking down and and you know like when i was young you wanted to find the most obscure band that you thought were amazing didn't you yeah and i could imagine there must be people like that still who were 16 or 18 who still want to do it and go back to the 80s and sort of go my god i just found this little band here and you know, because some of it, you just think, actually, they only made one or two albums, but my God, they're amazing. Like, you know, I mean, I can name those, but it's, it is interesting, that, that side of it. And if you can sort of yeah. either bring out a compilation or even do a few dates and sell some T-shirts, cash back, you know, but... Well, um, I know. I mean, it's, it's slightly harder for us because the girls, you know, live in LA, Laguna. Um, Woody's in madness, of course, still. Um... So, you know, we have to arrange our re reunions around those things. Yes. Um, but it must be, I mean, is it something, without sounding too cosmic or new agey, but is it quite a nice feeling to be able to sort of come back decades later as quite different people, but the same, if you know what I mean, and, and sort of have that kind of experience to play still and, and just feel a bit more sober on stage, possibly? Um, 100%. Um, it's, you know, the, the, the weird thing about, I mean, I know a lot of bands that don't get on with each other and they hate each other and stuff, but I mean, we've been very lucky because, um, Voice of Life, we're, we're all still mates, you know, and there's no horror stories, uh, you know, we hate each other or anything like that. It hasn't happened. Yes. Um, um so probably maybe due to the fact that we haven't done a lot <laughs> you know <laughs> apart, apart from the occasional reunions i mean um i mean you know i would love to do another uh, uh, tour and i know woody and mike and the girls would but you know obviously this has come along this year has been an insane year and um all yes. of that's gone out it's of the been, window. It's complete. So do you occasionally have the idea or thought of doing any new material and thinking, oh, we could do a six-track EP or something like no, that? Well, I don't know. I do with iLudicus because yes. we can control that more. Um, that, that's more of a controllable scenario. Um, with Voice of Beehive, uh, the uh, connotations are slightly different and I don't, I'm not sure whether there's the willingness there to yeah. write again. When a band sort of finishes but then doesn't, okay say it does, do you, is there a process that has to be done that, you know, like the paperwork, is there any, is there paperwork, you know, you go, right, I'm officially the band is done, or is there there's still some grey areas. Um, well, I that doesn't that doesn't come into it because they've Ludicrous have always been self sufficient. But um, with Voice of Beehive, yeah, yeah, there was a um, okay. Uh, your wages stop in three months' time. That's it. I mean, it was as blunt as that, you know. Yes, but but then it was also the fact that. There was no kind of, oh my God, we've got a huge bill, or oh my God, we've got to do this, or if there's any other obligations. You well, could I, well, I had to go out and do the, the music for efforts, and I had to start thinking elsewhere. Yes. I remember Dave Bow sitting me down and saying, Martin, he says, you're going to have to look for something else. And after ten, nearly ten years, you know, you sit there and you're you're faced across this desk, and you think, okay, this is happening. But I was always very confident that I, you know, I could do something else anyway. So yeah, well, yeah, I know because quite a lot of musicians have said they spent one, you know, a year almost just wandering, feeling like 
an emptiness, which is probably depression, and then one day think, right, I better go and go back to college or find something to do. Because actually, I can't, well, yeah. you know, but there is no more. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, th I think, especially now, I, I, I think that stigma of you have to be a musician and a musician only is going. Um, especially i mean this year has also taught people that um i mean even myself you know i mean I, my the doing you know creating bids and stuff like that 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 stopped the music stopped so you have to start thinking in different ways and um um i i don't think it'll ever be like that when i first started out trying to be in a band it was i'm only going to be in a band and that's it you know um, now it's not. You'll have a, you'll have several other jobs you know, <laughs> to yeah. keep going, and, uh, and and a lot of these bands that reform now, you know, from the eighties, they've all got jobs, other jobs, and then they reform and they go back to their job, and um, that's the way it should be, really. Well, I think most of them have got a day job, and the music takes place in the evenings and the occasional. Yeah, and the and the four week holiday is like right, I can do something here, but then that's it. And yeah, back at work on Monday. 13 yeah. whatever they, and yeah I don't and even people who I've spoke to always had that even back in the 80s because I suppose a lot of indie bands there was I think the reason most bands finish after five years is they've been together in that transit band and yeah. there's, there's still a total lack of money so they never had that oh there's a bit of money this is great it's like we're still broke and I'm still eating crap food and I'm mm. just had enough so I'm gonna bail out <laughs> I, I look back on it not as as earning a lot of money um, or we did okay at the time but as as a life experience you know nobody can buy that yeah you know they can't even my you know my kids are in the music industry and um you know they're 29 and 32 they've got you know good jobs in the music industry but they come back and say, what was it like, Dad, you know, um, touring the world, you know. Um, it's, it's, you can't buy that. It doesn't matter, you know. Yeah. So look, just, just what I have this this. But if you could have said something to an 18 year old, your 18 year old self, with all the, you know, the wisdom and the experiences you have, is there anything you would have just kind of wanted to whisper, even if they ignored it and just say, look, have, do everything you want to do, sex, drugs, rock and roll, but look, there's just one, there's this one couple of, one a bit of advice or a bit of a few things I would just keep an eye on. I just wondered what that would be. It's difficult for me to say that now in this climate. Um, I mean, the obvious one is don't give up your day job if you have one but um that was an old thing that people used to say when i was a kid so um i don't know how relevant that is i i i just say beware of the the way the media projects people into into fame and the limelight it is it's all false you know and whatever you do try and be true to yourself you there's no quick fix in in being famous or in the entertainment industry it just doesn't happen and quite often it will make you more miserable um i was lucky that when i was involved it was a work ethic. we were like if you say this might sound a strange analogy um have you gone? No, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, you've disappeared off my screen. Um, I'd say it would be like being on the coalface when we did it. You know, hard graft, go out there, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that happens anymore. And um, I think it's a, a lot of it's much more disposable than, than it was. Yes. Well, I suppose, I mean, just kind of that last thing, but I think in those, those days, but, you know, when, when we bought kind of, you know, the single or the album, you know, it was kind of felt like a major purchase and you had to go and struggle to get it. And then you had to sort of think, 
fuck it, I'm going to play it even if I hate it. So yeah. you don't, you you love it and you even play the B-side. Yeah. And, and you can, you know, and it's something that's kind of like, wow, I'm going to keep it and it's still on my show. Oh. You know, so it's a little bit like, it, it, you know, it took months to get that. It didn't just go, oh, I'll quickly listen to the, oh, 20 seconds, I'll have enough. Or, no. It was kind of a major thing. And, you know, getting hold of records, I remember kind of listening to John Peel and thinking, I oh, yeah. love that record. And then I, um, and then thought, gee, how do you get hold of that single you just played? You know, and the record shop just looks at me and we don't have it. No. <laughs> so anyway. I know. Anyway, Martin, look, thank you. I better, um, yeah, I might have to go soon. But look, it's been fantastic to speak to you. And thank you ever so much for your time. It's been incredible. Uh, I, 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 it's been really good. I, you know, I, I don't know you, but I, I'd love to catch up with someone. Where do you live? Norwich. Oh, you're up, up that way. Oh, that's where my, uh, Mike Jones lives there. A beehive guitarist lives up there. Yes. Yeah. Mike Jones. Does he enjoy yeah. it? A, fi a fine city. Well, obviously, you know, he must do if he's still there. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've been bet. there for a long time. <laughs> it's the sort of place you'd love. It's, it's, it's crazy. But okay. look, All right. Well, that, Thank you ever so much. And can you um, let me know when, you, when it's... Yes, and I'll send you a link, and then you can always, yeah. you know, listen. I'll, 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 if you don't mind, I'll post it on the Beehive and the Iludicus. And... Yes, that would be fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Take All care. Right. Lovely to meet you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was me. Yes, brilliant ending there. We're in conversation with Martin Brett from Voice of the Beehive and also I Ludicrous bass player. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can. Make it nice. So um, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. And all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. Check them out. They might just change your life. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.